0: Hello, and welcome to Resident Advisor's Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling, and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So, here we are 300 exchanges. You may remember we marked our 100th exchange with Ricardo Villalobos. We celebrated 200 with Sven Vaith. And now for our 300th outing, we've got a bona fide house music legend in Larry Hurd. We're incredibly lucky to get FaceTime with Heard. He doesn't tend to give many interviews and he basically stopped touring back in 2012. So we had our LA-based staff writer Matt McDermott fly out to Tennessee to meet Heard on home turf. Settle in for the next 65 minutes as we get to know the man behind some of house music's most iconic moments. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. Our 300th exchange with Larry Heard is up
1: Honored to speak with house legend Larry Hurd at his home in Memphis, Tennessee. This is our 300th RA exchange. It's an honor to have you on the podcast, Larry.
2: It's an honor to be here. Appreciate you asking me.
1: So, this was an exciting year for you. There are a couple things going on. First of all, you have the Mr. Fingers 12 inch, which came out. In addition to that, the first track that you ever made, Mystery of Love appears on the closing track of Kanye West's new record, The Life of Pablo. And perhaps most excitingly to people in our world, you'll also be performing live again for the first time in many years. So it's this burst of activity. How do do you feel?
2: Well, my normal feeling is uh, all the work is kind of what kind of flashes through your mind first. But as you kind of slowly chip away at it, you start to feel a little more confident as you kind of piece things together. Yeah.
1: So why the decision to bring back Mr. Fingers this year?
2: It was one of those things that just kind of flowed naturally where um, I kind of had slowed down to a, a halt with a recordings period during the period where I was back and forth doing a lot of traveling DJing and things like that so you don't have the same energy when you return home to just jump and right back into working without any kind of a break or breather so everything just got down to basically zero and us doing reissues more than anything and then once I kind of start to have a little energy and recharge a little from all the guess 25 years at that point that I've been kind of going back and forth, kind of jet-setting, and um, of course I always wanted to do more releases, but the time to kind of get them all taken care of was really not there. And then I finally got around to reviewing through my archives and and new things and kind of assembling tracks that felt like they could work for Mr. Finger's release and just went forward from there.
1: We're speaking the day after Legendary musician Prince died, and yeah, um, yeah. he apparently has a a vault in Paisley Park with all basically everything he's recorded, and you know fragments of things that yeah. may make it out there over the years. Yeah. I, I understand you have something like that too. Oh yeah,
2: I think everybody kind of does that because you kind of do a lot of trial and error before you actually get around to something that you want the outside world to hear. So maybe for every one song that you hear there might be 10 or 15 that we kind of toyed around with and then ultimately decided it maybe it didn't work or didn't fit the feeling of you know uh, if it's a grouping of songs didn't kind of fit in right lots of sketches and stick figures of uh, ideas around you yeah.
1: so From the very beginning with your first release, Mystery of Love, it's been well documented. You began as a drummer and playing in bands and interested in prog rock and reggae, soul music, and picked up a drum machine as well as a synthesizer and pretty much right off the bat made Mystery of Love. And you self-released that and then licensed it and sold tens of thousands of copies of that record. Was it was it important to you to have your own imprint, to have your own forum right off the bat?
2: Well, this was another uh, scenario where the um, the situation kind of dictated, where it's either you, well, a- actually a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Donnie Hardy, whose name is actually on the, it says Donnie Heard on the record, but it's actually Donnie Hardy, <laughs> typo. And he suggested, you know, why don't you just put it out yourself? And then we started, you know, researching. Even though we didn't know where to start, we just went to, like, the Yellow Pages. Let's, let's find somewhere and call them and see maybe if they can kind of fill us in. And we stumbled across Bud Presner, who's in Gary, Indiana. And I think he comes from the big band era. I think he was playing trombone and things like that. And um, he was, you know, willing to talk to us and kind of talk us through how the process works and he was running a mastering house at the time so we took a road trip I had never been to Gary to begin with so I was like okay well this would be fun we're going out to Gary we can see where the Jackson 5 lived and all that kind of stuff and kind of get this this accomplished here so he went out and got three acetates done well on our first meeting with him I brought the cassette that I had of mystery of love of course I don't know what he was doing all the scientific stuff you do with the stylist as far as the cutting and what have you and did that for us and then we kind of made arrangements to um once I kind of got it recorded again since I had a just had my cassette copy of it we wanted to try um recording it again I think by that time I had met Robert and we were starting to in- integrate him in also. And um, yeah, you know, we just kind of did the, the press, a the, the little bit of research, you know, via Bud Presner and then kind of started pressing. And I was driving around the stores, like the stories you hear about MC Hammer and Luke, and you had the records in the trunk of your car and you, you know, go to the stores and hope they buy some from you. And I was lucky that, you know, the stores were buying them and then. The next phase was moving on to the DJ International where Robert and Harry Dennis had come across those guys. And I was like, well, that'll take some kind of work off of me to do this. Instead of me driving back and forth to stores, I can be in the studio making tracks. So it's more, again, another logistics thing uh, kind of devised around the circumstance. Yeah.
1: And those three original acetates went to... Frankie Knuckles, Ron Hardy, Larry LeVan?
2: Well, I had one. I still have one right now. But I think it somehow had one of the acetates made their way to Larry LeVan, but they originally went to Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles. So maybe Larry LeVan ended up with Ron Hardy's after he passed or something like that.
1: And Ron and Frankie claimed the track initially.
2: I've said that a couple of times in interviews, but, you know, I think it, that was more a ploy by my friends to get me to come out. to said, if we know how to get him, we'll say somebody else is claiming that they made the track. And I worked full-time. I was always involved with music, you know, since my teenage years. So I got my daily dosage of music every day. You know, so I, you know wasn't that keen about, okay, I got to go up, now I got to stand around. Can I take a folding chair at least where I can sit down or something? Because that's me. I just want to sit and enjoy the music and watch people dance.
1: What kind of work were you doing at the time?
2: I worked for the federal government. I was with the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. So I did with the Social Security Division. So I went through about three different jobs there. Computer room clerk, records analysis, and then benefit Authorizer, you see my awards up there.
1: <laughs> so we've got some sustained superior performance awards from the government right alongside uh, the best house group award from Thinker's yeah,
2: yeah. Inc. <laughs> so yeah, I got my little few things kind of on display, I guess. Yeah.
1: This gets back to something that I wanted to say. So if if your friends came up with a ploy saying the top DJs in the city were c- claiming your track, you know you weren't really aware of what was going on in these legendary clubs like the music box before you started playing music before you started making music that would work for those clubs and this is something that is a bit perplexing to me because mystery of love is track that still brings it down today and like how did you make club music without being aware of the club
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, well, we we went through the disco movement. So I knew certain songs, the Bee Gees, Donna Summer, the things that made it to the radio. We were familiar with that, and we were familiar with the four-on-the-floor drum beat. So, I mean, I had some knowledge of the music. I just hadn't really been to the clubs, you know. The, in addition to the stuff that did happen to make radio, then it was a whole other slew of records that you never would have heard on the radio so that was a great thing about kind of starting to go to some of the dj clubs yeah
1: and you were using the kind of tape recorder method at that point
2: yeah initially all I, I had two cassette decks at the time so you record one pass on one cassette deck and then transfer over to another one and play another line on top so pretty pretty simple maybe prehistoric but Simple principle.
1: And then, even when you went out to the club to see DJs, like sometimes you bring the Walkman, and then, you well, know, I kinda... wouldn't.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't. You know, want to be the one bothering the DJ. So it's more people that more had a closer relationship with them. Like I mentioned, the guy Tony Harris, who ended up being my connection to Robert Owens and to Frankie Knuckles, yeah. and he was DJing at the time. So.
1: So this year also saw the classic. Fingers ink collection, another side get reissued on Triple Vinyl, on Alleviated, and still holds up, obviously. But one thing that I wanted to ask was what was the sort of working relationship between you and Robert and Ron and how did that work? How did that come about and what was it like in the studio making those tracks?
2: Well, pretty much I would come up with music grooves and then kinda of let them hear them. And of course, every groove you let Robert hear, he can write something too. He's just prolific like that. We had a, more of a struggle, though, getting the right fit for Ron Wilson. He didn't really have the gift for writing lyrics as quickly as Robert Owens. So, like, for so glad I wrote the words. He sang with Robert on Bye Bye. Robert wrote those words. So, it was, I don't think he wrote any lyrics. But yeah, that's why there's more songs with Robert singing because Robert would always come in and just commandeer a track so quick and make it his own that it kind of started to feel bad because I invited Ron to you know participate in this, but it seemed like he is always kind of the third wheel in a way because Robert would just come in so convincingly on any track that you put before him.
1: That relationship is always sort of, felt natural as a working relationship and a live collaboration mm-hmm.
2: yeah because we didn't it's not like we were holding a whip on each other or anything like that it's just more like here's the track you got any ideas and robert at that time he had like this shopping bag of napkins and pieces of paper and you just pour something out and start reading something he wrote down on his break on his job and somehow you just always get something that just felt right and he was able
1: to sort of express this yearning feeling yeah, like yeah. very easily.
2: Yeah. I think Robin and I had something, this kind of thing in common where he was singing. And I think maybe he had been involved in choirs and things like that. And he was singing, but he wasn't having an opportunity to be heard. And like myself where I was in bands, I was playing drums, but I had music ideas and those weren't, I wasn't getting a chance to kind of explore those. So we were kind of all, each had this kind of a, a yearning in a way where I, I want to, you know, explore music ideas. Okay, I played drums for years. That's fine. It's cool. Nothing against it, but I still want to branch out, you know, expand myself. I think the same thing was going on with him where he was singing, and of course, he doesn't have, like, the most conventional style ever, so there were people who were literally telling him he couldn't sing, and... I was like, when I heard him, I was like, "Mm, I don't know why they would say that, because what I hear sounds pretty good to me. And he always made me think of a cross between Joe Tex and Leroy Hudson, in a way, as far as his approach.
1: Was it a pretty exciting feeling in Chicago at the time, just so many people putting out records, uh, labels like DJ International and tracks having an immediate global impact, and Mm. a lot of producers and DJs just pushing things.
2: Yeah, and even, even kind of before too much started happening with tracks in DJ International, there was little, other little tiny labels like Jesse and Persona where Jamie Principal come out. Those are some of the first actual hard copy records. There was a real community. There's a sense of community attached to that because now, because I went to high school with Jamie Principal. We went to the same high school. I can't say I really know him. Maybe I would see him. But it's different. Like, I loved Ohio players and hear the music and, you know, play along with it and what have you. But it's really different when the record comes out and it's someone you actually have been in their presence now. And it's someone that's nearby. So, again, the sense of community played a big part in it, where it's like when you went to the clubs and some of these obscure tracks you were here, it's like, wonder who that is and are they in the room and that kind of thing it kind of had that thing because you felt kind of closer to it so that's I think what made everyone excited where everybody was I was one I'm waiting for it on and on to come out and waiting on my angel I was I was waiting
1: your stuff is maybe more melodic I mean, you get into the jack tracks as well obviously mm-hmm. but it seems like A lot of times you'd have these like heavy beat tracks, whereas did it feel like what you were doing was different even at the time?
2: Yeah, in a way, I I definitely was the oddball on the block, but I wasn't unfamiliar with being the misunderstood one. You know, like I was mentioning in the car, just even the music I kind of was starting to buy As a young kid, you know, I'm coming home with Seals and Croft 45s, and my brother was coming home with Isley Brothers, which is kind of maybe what you expect to happen. But then I start coming home with, you know, Rush Records and Who Records and Yes and Frank Zappa, and I'm sure everyone in the household was like, what in the world is going on here?
1: You said your family was also a bit surprised when they heard your initial club tracks as well.
2: Yeah, they even though they're you, you're kind of right around people, they're kind of clueless to what you're doing. It's happening right in front of them, but I guess I mean from the a person just listening, I don't know whether something's being recorded or this is just practice or what have you. But just happened on a couple occasions. I just because I started off really um, back in the days. Remember the little piano key cassette recorders? I had one of those. I was the little kid in the neighborhood and. A band would be practicing, I'd get, get there in my little position and record their practice session and go home and listen to it. So that was maybe, even without thinking about it, that was the beginning of me doing engineering stuff, and I didn't think about it. But now you think about it as it gets to be a bigger and bigger part of what's going on, you can't help but face the reality of, that uh, a lot of time and energy is going into engineering and engineering by feel since I, you know, have no real technical knowledge or training, you know, just kind of do it by feel.
1: I just have to say it's kind of mind-blowing how casual your description of the process is because these are some of the most serious club tracks ever made. You, <laughs> you know, like, it's, it's like, they still work mm-hmm. 30 years later. Like, I'm just, you know, the, the baseline to Washing Machine or Mystery of Love... Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they're influenced by Marauder or something like that. In the same sense, they they're just harder and mm. like what like w- I'm, I'm just wondering like how you stumbled upon that. Like,
2: well, I spent about I, in high school. I think we had to take three instruments. I think and one ended up being the recorder, which is traditional. And then I had two brothers who were playing guitar. They started when maybe they, they're about ten or eleven years old playing guitar. I said, well. If they're playing guitar maybe I can do it I I can get one of their guitars and practice I sucked at it pretty bad but I passed the class and then I switched over to bass because I knew my fingers weren't right for the guitar you see bass is here now so I still dabble with that so I spent about a year playing the bass before I kind of opened my big mouth and told someone that I played the drums a guy that was putting a band together so I had to hurry up and buy a drum set isolate myself and hide out and learn how to at least play some simple beats before I kind of face this guy again, you know, after my bold statement. So I had to, yeah, make good
1: on my word. Did Fingers Inc. translate well to the live setting? Unfortunately, I've never had the opportunity to see.
2: Yeah, well, it's never kind of been, again, since I'm kind of playing multiple parts on pretty much every song, it's kind of impossible to replicate that live you know since i only have one of me to put on stage so it was kind of more the track playing and robert singing might maybe add living on the synthesizer or something like that you know and then coming along to ron also and since he knows something about dancing he maybe come up with steps or something and things like that so
1: and robert's a natural performer oh yeah
2: if robert was here right now he'd do a performance right now Again, he doesn't have to try to perform; it just happens, like somebody like Whitney Houston and Barbara Streisand. I mean, they Barbara Streisand could probably be in her ninety and start singing. You're like this now, you know, just into it. You know? They just do it so well, you know.
1: So as as the nineties begin, you start to sort of acknowledge your smoother sort of jazz influences, and then to deal with. MCA comes about and you start to, you know, go for more of like a quiet storm, like smoother sound. That's more about you and more about your vocals. Can you can you tell me about when you decided to pick up the mic?
2: Well, it was another thing that, again, the circumstance played a, a major role in that, where another individual, David Hollister, was planned out to sing the, the vocal on What About This Love, and he didn't show up at the studio. I ended up singing a scratch vocal. And... Everyone at the studio enjoyed that and said, well, well, you don't want to put it out this way. And it's, I guess they finally convinced me their confidence that I'll take a chance on it. And, and it ended up doing well. Yeah. Again, kind of always the oddball far as tempos, because the original Mystery Love was 110. Then when we did it with DJ International, I, well, the alleviated one ended up going up to 117. Then we went up to 120. When we re-recorded again for DJ International, and then I jumped back down again with "Can You Feel It" one sixteen. What about this love one thirteen? So I've never followed the status quo. It's just more what feels right for this track. It doesn't matter what's popular, or, you know what the peak time tempo is. If it doesn't feel right there, it'll be irresponsible for me as someone calling themselves the producer to make a critical mistake like that. Where the song feels right is where it feels right. And then outside of that, we have pitch control for anyone who needs to speed it up and slow it down. I
1: wish more producers would Take risks like that rather than 120 right down the line?
2: I guess it would serve to, you know, kind of, you have more surprises that way. You, know, you have more challenge, which maybe some people don't want more of a challenge. You just want it to be easy. But again, we just come from the whole world of, you know, when we start mixing records, it was a Harold Melvin record, and they didn't put a DJ intro on it. You had to get it in there, you know, especially the guys who started, you know, playing on 45s before the 12-inch came along. So everything just wasn't constructed for convenience. It was constructed because of the proper arrangement that they, the producer wanted for the song. So we were accustomed to that. We are accustomed to working around the little obstacles and hurdles. You know.
1: Is it safe to say that you're a reluctant star,
2: I don't know if I'm a star at all, because <laughs> you know, a couple buddies, buddies, me and Mr. White, were joking with the whole Godfather house, king of house, I think Farley is now, and I told him I was the groundhog of house, <laughs> because I'm the one that you kind of see once every blue moon, you know, and you may hear music all the time, but far as seeing me, it's like every once in a while, you, you may show up, and even at parties, I was not the person who opened the party and closed it. I'm just the cameo appearance guy that showed up for an hour and went back home.
1: Because he wanted to be in the studio.
2: That too, but sometimes you just again, just okay, that's enough. I get my daily dosage of music every day so I don't any additional, you know is not really really mandatory. I'm just more getting out and maybe supporting someone else's event and trying to hear maybe discover a couple things to put on my own shopping list to pick up.
1: But one of the things is that since you moved down here to Memphis and when was that?
2: 97.
1: 97 like I've noticed that you know in being down here you're connected with younger producers who you know come from a different world and you're you're supporting them and releasing some of their music like Ben Jenkins who's moved on to D.C. and a few other producers that I won't mention because their stuff's on the way. I don't want to announce everything right now. It'd be a surprise. (laughs) But you managed to make it out to, you know, see see DJs and people Mm -hmm. who were in the house. Yeah, sometimes it's
2: really only a matter of kind of connecting with maybe one individual who starts to kind of invite you to something or run you by something, to take a peek at this, let's check this out. You kind of do things like that, you know. And for me, I think that ended up being uh, Mr. White, Chad White, where he kind of was more aware of things going on around town. So I just check with him, anything going on tonight or this weekend, and just kind of peek in for a minute.
1: Can you tell us how that collaboration came about, obviously responsible for another classic the Sun can't compare.
2: Well, he's a good guy, very energetic, and, you know, definitely brought energy to the table so, and had a good voice, and I said, well, it's fine. I usually kind of follow the same premise of letting whoever I'm kind of trying to work with just hear some tracks and just let them kind of ad-lib freestyle to see, just to start gauging, okay, what are we working with as far as his range and... imagination and all that other stuff you kind of, you have to get a picture of that to see if you're sometimes, because you know you work really hard on a track, you don't want somebody just come and say one word, you want them to actually come and do something, especially after an encounter like Robert where you're accustomed to these more harder core you know, musicians and singers, especially as you go back the timeline for me where we was playing, these guys could play Leb Zetland's guitar parts and Alex Lifes and all the Rush stuff and all that stuff. So a lot of those people laughed at Mystery of Love when it came out. What, what do you mean?
1: What was their reaction?
2: Well, because, I mean, uh, uh, again, we were, coming, we were playing this uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra stuff and Zappa stuff and, you know, Genesis music and next thing you know, this simple, straightforward boom, 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 boom. They were like... Okay, what is this? So it, it was pretty funny though, their their reaction. But then when it was on the billboard charts, it's like, Okay, well, I don't know what to tell you. I didn't I didn't expect for this to happen, but but then some, some folks would even say, Well, produce a song for me. I was like, oh, the one who you wouldn't let me get off the drums when I was in the band with you. <laughs> you didn't want to say I told you so. Because I didn't know. I just wanted to try it, though.
1: But that was what it came out of, being a drummer, and you had some ideas about the bass line or mm-hmm. the synth part, and and not really having that feedback mm-hmm. make it to the final product. That That's what drove the, yeah. the solo work. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, because you always feel like there's a cap on what you bring to the group. Whereas it's like, well, I'm interested in exploring other things. So I said the word exploring a couple of times now, so maybe that's, again, the adventurous side of me where we know what the status quo is, we know what everybody is doing and what's popular and what's not, but still, let's try this anyway. I'm, I'm that guy who just wants to try it sometimes to just be wacky. Sometimes, you know, just feel internally is just something that you need to get out of you or something like that
1: mentioned with both Robert as well as Mr. White that they have this natural energy when you see them out that translates to the studio as well as, in Robert's case, the live setting. Do you have a tendency to work with these kind of like hyper energetic kind of wild card vocalists so you can kind of like lay in the cut a little bit and do your thing?
2: I don't think it's deliberately, but I don't know. You never know. Any of us knows our own psyche, so it could be a little bit of that where You know, I'm comfortable with, you know, producing and composing and doing all the the tedious engineering work and things like that. The place I'm not comfortable is on stage, especially if there's too much attention on me. So that's where someone comes, someone who is a performer and is blatant that they're a performer just by the way they even walk around a room or walk down the street, they command attention.
1: You were telling a story about uh, you and Robert in Japan.
2: Oh, the, the Space Lab yellow fashion montage. It's always hilarious when we meet up and I'm always, since Robert is really into high fashion and things like that, I'm always wondering what he's gonna wear. He showed up, put a sound check, and I saw what he had on. It had some fur and some leather and going around and, so I started to ask him, so tell me about this outfit you have on, like, you know, the, the red carpet interviewers do. And of course he fell right in line and started doing a runway thing in the club and we we're we starting to laugh hysterically. We were trying to keep straight faces, but we started to laugh and everybody around at the sound check started to get a big kick out of first wondering what was going on. Are we having a weird confrontation? But they I guess you see us laughing to the point where tears are coming out of our eyes and me touching his outfit and all that touching the fur and things like that so even before we sang a note or said hello we started joking and having fun with
1: each other. The house LP in general is something that a lot of producers struggle with where they have issues on figuring out a direction like what do you do? Do you put 12 club tracks on a record? people want to listen to an album of six minute club tracks just back to back to back and this seems to be like something that you've never had an issue with whether it's something like love's arrival which has a very specific sound or Mm -hmm. introduction again which is more vocal and instrument live instrumentation or you know alien which is a concept record Mm -hmm just doesn't seem like you've had that issue with the album format
2: i mean i think that goes back to your inquiry about the personal archives so that's where those come in handy where you can review back through things and say did i use this for a project Uh, why not Uh, because you know sometimes you know the track you make on monday on monday you're not feeling that great about it but six months down the line you listen to it and say hmm why did i shelve this so that's what it is. I periodically try to go back and listen through my sketches and see if um something I just neglected to develop further. And I make notes for myself all the time, you know. They're...
1: The computer for you in your setup is almost like a mnemonic memory aid yeah. to an extent. Yeah, big time,
2: big time. I started to just discover that when I first Went to the stages of playing things by hand and then evolving to getting like a 8-track sequencer, then a 32-track sequencer, and then kind of ended up on Atari platform first and using a, a notator program. And then eventually moved to a PC and then to Mac. So it was many steps, you know. Kind of
1: held off on the sequencer initially?
2: I did. I was, I was kind of a little stubborn coming from the whole, you know, manual playing background. So part of that was, you know, keeping me from just embracing it. But then once I, again, discovered that it could be an extension of my memory, then I was sold. Yeah. Oh, I can save it on a floppy. Great. I'm all for that.
1: A lot of the hits, for instance, Can You Feel It, was written in your loft in Chicago on a snowy night. And then Mystery of Love, written the day after you get a synthesizer and a drum machine. Sun Can't Compare, written basically I did out did that
2: of, in a, the kitchen of uh, the first apartment. Well, the second apartment that I lived in when I got down here. We, we recorded that in the kitchen.
1: And it was basically out of like an improvisation... Obsession, like you had yeah. yeah we were more getting
2: together just to kind of again get a feel for each other you know i'm letting you hear your, my music concepts let's hear what your voice sounds like on top of it so more feeling each other out but it is one that just came out it's like well this is too good we need to record this
1: and then have a lot of your most enduring songs your most enduring tracks been written very quickly like that
2: like I say, I, sometimes that kind of is a a determining factor sometimes. The things that kind of don't run smoothly tend up taking a longer amount of time, and it gives you more time to finally sometimes give up on them. And that's what happens. So it's better for me when, when things go quick. And then you can review back and say, okay, was it my imagination, or does this actually sound good? Maybe if you can get to somewhere where you can test it out on an audience or something like that, that helps too. And that was a great advantage we had in Chicago with Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles and other DJs, not just them, being willing to play cassette tapes and things off of reel-to-reel, you know, off the from the neighborhood folks.
1: Give me an example of a time you brought a tape to the club and you were like, okay. Well, I didn't bring one,
2: but I was at the club when he happened to play Mystery of Love. Well, I think it was still in the process of the copies being manufactured. But I got a chance to see the crowd really go nuts. And I was like, okay, wow, they really like this. So that was, you know, confidence booster, of course. you Because um, I'm sure it would have been the exact opposite if everybody just walked out of the club when it came on. It's like, oh, wow, let me just stay on my job then.
1: And speaking of Mystery of Love, since we're back on that 2016 has maybe seen more people hear the track than ever before with its inclusion on Kanye's record where it's sort of made into a mashup beat with elements of deep inside by hard drive how did how did that come about and how did that cross your radar I think that's probably more
2: Kanye would be the one to tell you how it came about but I well we obviously know that you know hip hop world integrates a lot of sampling in, into the work so yeah, he just ended up sampling one of my songs, but it was quite, I thought it was quite interesting that it was 30 years in, you know, for me, for him to come around uh, and for the first release for myself on the 30th anniversary of its release, for him to sample it and, you know, kind of revive it in a way and, you know, or or adapt it for a, a new audience, maybe. Yeah, so it was great. I mean, I'm definitely, you know, excited about it, yeah
1: he originally played the track in a fashion show? Then? Yeah, I
2: think at that point it was the instrumental. So what I ended up being able to track down right away on YouTube was the instrumental track. And I was like, well, I I want to hear the rap. Well, okay, because this part is like hearing what I've been hearing forever. But I wanted to hear the rap. So and that took about four more months for me to actually hear the rap. So I was like, okay, I, I get it now.
1: So... Back in 2012, you took a break from DJing due to hearing damage, and now we're sort of seeing the products of what's happened in the meantime. Like you've yeah, been able, to I got to a
2: chance to come back in the studio and start working, so now I can kind of let some stuff out into the to the universe, as opposed to it just sitting on a hard drive and you know waiting for me to return from a trip. Because that's pretty much what happens when one undertaking starts, the others conclude, you know, or, or are suspended or something like that. And each time you get back, some you may not be in the same frame of mind to start back on the songs that you left off on. So you may start a fresh new crop once you've kind of recharged a little.
1: And you notice a direct correlation between your productivity in the studio and how much you're playing out.
2: Oh, big time, yeah. It's just a matter of, you know, hours and minutes, you know, because if I'm away for two weeks or three weeks, yeah, no activity is occurring in the studio. So, And then when you come back, of course, you still have to rest your jet lag and all that kind of stuff. We're not robots or anything, so we do have to kind of, have some rest somewhere in between there.
1: And do you miss the travel? Do you miss the gigs?
2: Certain aspects of it, I don't miss just standing on my feet for hours and hours and hours and hours because that tends to be the first part of me that gets tired is my feet. And there's been many occasions where people see me, you know, in my stocking feet because that's a way to kind of relax a little bit and, you know, kind of at least feel like you're in a relaxed environment. Even if it's not to just have your shoes off or something. But yeah, certain aspects of it and meeting people and all that kind of stuff and going to all these countries and being able to see great architecture which I'm a fan of and But
1: in general you've enjoyed the sort of more laid back lifestyle that being here in Memphis has provided.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty much, you know, a laid back person. If it weren't for what I what I do as, you know, my job, chances are I would yeah, and I'd be here all the time, you know, out mowing the lawn and things like that, you know. Just kind of it'd be closer to n- a normal life, except I'd just be in this room recording music while someone else is, you know, in an office doing an insurance policy or something.
1: So this is the 9 to 5 and here in the studio, and but you mm-hmm. like to be outside. and
2: Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. like any other person. I mean, I'm not a fool hermit. I am a groundhog. We peek out. <laughs> we may not stay out there, but we peek out. Yeah.
1: What are some of your other hobbies?
2: Making things with wood. I have lots of things around here that I've kind of built. I used to draw and paint and things like that, but I ended up kind of... Music ended up kind of being where I kind of do my artistic thing. But kind of normal things like going to movies, going out to restaurants, hanging with folks, and, you know, some of anything. I think I'd pretty much be game for anything. Watching a parade, flying a kite, it doesn't matter.
1: What don't you miss about the live setting? Well,
2: the DJing, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you're kind of up against uh, the varying expectations of, how many number of people there are there. Each person, of course, is expecting something different. I don't know. Some may not know who you are at all, but they still kind of have... Sometimes those can be the worst ones because they may be more expecting you to play like Calvin Harris or some of these mainstream more pop guys. So they may come up with some weird, can you play Britney Spears or something like that? It's like, well, if I had it, <laughs> Which again, is this next notion that people who DJ have every record in the universe is kind of. I think people sometimes maybe think that. But if I did have written these Spears tonight, I don't think it would really fit in with you know kind of what we're doing here. Obviously, someone brought you. You don't you don't know what's going on, and then you know you can't get mad at people for that. But it it can be weird. It can be like a little democratic thing you have to do in between and sometimes you get to people yeah who want to take selfies and all this in the middle of you trying to pick music to move to the next song you know so squeezing that in can be kind of awkward at times especially if they're aggressive but you know for the most part they they usually okay the worst thing for me was starting to kind of wonder what was happening where I wasn't hearing a tweeter on the speaker that's worse than all the other stuff together because I was is something wrong with the speaker or is something wrong with my ears and everybody else is saying no i hear the tweeter and it's like okay well something's happening here yeah
1: but what we were talking about there where people coming up to you constantly during the set that sort of clashes with your attitude on the whole thing because when you were watching like larry levan frankie knuckles you tried to stay out of the way as much as possible yeah
2: yeah well i'm not trying to be that annoying person you know as innocent as it can be sometimes but it's still the person is working no matter how much fun you're having they are working is what's really going on and i know it doesn't seem like it because again it's a fun event but i know the the situation from both sides so I know how it can be when you're trying to focus in what you're doing and someone keeps coming asking arbitrary questions in the middle of you. You're trying to find a song to play and they come and say, so what were you thinking about when you made Bring Down the Walls? I can't even tell you what song played right before this song. So yeah, good luck. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) So you can't get out of your impromptu interviews that people want to do. They have some question that's pressing that they have to
1: ask you. It's funny you call yourself the uh groundhog of house and I really do hope that catches on after this interview.
2: <laughs> yeah, so then people will know uh, when you hear about a tour from him, doubt it highly. <laughs> now appearance, that's more feasible. But a tour, I really, really highly doubt that especially at, you know, my age, I mean, when my parents, well, my father was already deceased at my age, so he wasn't working anywhere, and I I don't think I would have asked him, just like the thing that was going on with Michael Jackson, I wouldn't ask my parent to moonwalk at over 50 years old, I wouldn't just do that, it just can be dangerous, I guess, yeah.
1: You're very conscious of your health at this point as well, like, and and if somebody needs you to fly out to Berlin to play can you feel it that's not that's not your number one priority necessarily um
2: well I guess anybody can play the record for them so uh, why it would specifically have to be me would be my question and then the next thing I since I'm being a realist I was like okay so you want me to come play can you feel it somewhere uh so give me some kind of justification now why I should just because me just hanging out yeah hanging out is fun when you're 18 and 20 but uh, when you're 55 like myself uh hey even hanging out has to have some kind of purpose for it and I would like my hanging out to be kind of therapeutic if if at all possible you know not just you know someone you know having me do something that they can do themselves
1: That said, you've managed to sort of connect with a younger group of producers here, even here in Memphis, including Ben Jenkins, who's now moved on to Washington, mm-hmm. and some other younger producers who you plan to release. So, you, yeah. so you do make it out, and you yeah, know, so periodically,
2: what's... I'm still the groundhog of Memphis too. They can tell you, you know, we'll see him at an event maybe once, twice a year. They have um different community festivals around town maybe i'll show up at something like that and kind of walk through where they have like independent vendors and things selling art and things like that i come to do that and i look at the art and while some of the other guys are immediately running towards the records, it's like okay uh, i'm going over here with this art here that this person did you know something you know to I appreciate more than one kind of art, not just music solely.
1: But with the mixes that you put up through your social media, you're you're staying up on what's coming out for the most yeah,
2: part. Yeah, I, I get out there and you know do my kind of treasure hunting on in different sites, and you know I buy you know uh, as you see, I buy vinyl, I buy downloads, I a million zillion CDs out there. We've done it all: cassettes, mini discs there's a mini disc player, there's a DAT. So far as the mediums, there's a cassette player value and a CD, so we've, we're covering a lot of the timeline. I don't have an eight track player, but yeah.
1: And uh, how do you do A&R for Alleviated? Because you you put out some really great stuff in the past couple of years. Um, What's your sort of A&R policy for the label?
2: I kind of A&R the same way I buy records my, for my personal collection. Would I buy this? You know, is the, the biggest question, you know. And as someone who has bought records, it's like, okay, yeah. Because you know how you feel when you buy a record and you get home and it doesn't quite have the same magic. Now you kind of let down a little bit and nobody likes that feeling. So I I want the one that, You know, I take it home and I can play it for a lot of years. It's just not connected to one trend that happens to be going on at the present. I try to do something that has like a timeless kind of a quality or edge to it. Make it relevant whenever you pick it up and play it.
1: Is that what you're going for with your own music as well?
2: Um, Well, that's where I come from it's not where I'm what I'm going for it's where I come from far as folks another one like Maurice White who just recently left us and uh, those are the people I came up listening to Maurice White, Earth, Wind and Fire, Herbie Hancock, all the Isley Brothers you know you, you name it far as what was on the radio that's what cultivated the even the way I kind of think about and approach and buy music it's it's one it's one entity that kind of
1: kind of directs everything. So it's coming from you know a soulful musical place always. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The trackier
2: stuff is kind of more tricky to kind of make some kind of prediction about because it's you know kind of always off the wall. But then a lot of people like off the wall stuff. So and I. I'm one of them where I like I like some stuff that's rooted in traditional theory, but then I like stuff that's kind of like okay, I didn't expect that yeah because you like love a surprise when it comes to music something that surprises you because the music can tend to be like kind of like movies when you go to a movie and you already know when someone's getting ready to get killed just by listening to the soundtrack. I say okay somebody's getting ready to die okay something suspenseful will happen you can kind of Predicted before it happens. And that's what you don't want to be able to do. Because I know I definitely, there's time periods where things have gotten so formulaic that you knew when the break was coming you know, on a song that you never heard before. It's like, no, nah, this, no, nah, that's not cool. So I want the one, this to surprise. Or you end up doing an edit or something like that, which we've kind of, Chicago has a rich history of folks editing you know to do their own personal arrangements of things
1: one thing that i want to talk about earlier even with a track like a path there are multiple versions floating around and with tracks like french kiss or percolator like there are all these things that feed into them well oh maybe there was a predecessor for french kiss that was made by somebody else but when mm-hmm. lewis saw the track slow down he was like okay i gotta go back and do something like that like chicago it seems like different neighborhoods have different versions of tracks and this idea of like borrowing and they're not being a master version is something that's very chicago would mm-hmm. you agree
2: again i think that's another thing that was circumstance because digital i think didn't come to the uh masses maybe i think i got a first dat machine maybe it was about 2 or 3 years into these recordings being made so that's why they're not kind of like usable masters for some of the songs cuz some of them were done on cassettes and on reel to reel and some things where there was like for be some surface noise and things like that in them yeah it, was, it wasn't my choice i just didn't have that available to me at the time
1: you had to redo it
2: yeah so they're de- definitely different prototypes of pretty much all of the songs. Yeah.
1: Back to Alleviated, you know, when I worked at a record store, everybody still gets excited when, you know, they can get Slamdance again, or mm-hmm. they can pick up the Gherkin Jerks records mm-hmm. for the first time. And, you know, of course, recently Another Side and always The Sun Can't Compare, like mm-hmm. as, as as a label, owner and a producer is it gratifying to see that you can put these out in the stores as though they're new records oh yeah it's great yeah
2: I mean uh, and I can kind of always use them sometimes to buy me time while I'm trying to work on something new at least there's something out there you know in the marketplace and something for people to talk about on the streets to where it's a, a diversion in a way while I'm trying to complete something else you know whether it be a remix for someone, something's always kind of got you in the studio. You're always working on something, but sometimes nothing's finished. Everything is being worked on, so that those can serve to kind of come in between the releases, the, the new stuff. You know.
1: Talk about getting the Gherkin Jerks alias back out. like In terms of both the reissue as well as the remixes you just did, why did you sort of keep yourself out of that for so long? It's just the usual thing? You like to stay in the background on that?
2: No, not really. It's another one where it just, you know, you have your hands in a million different things, and some of them you just kind of inadvertently kind of leave behind because you more, maybe get more involved with another one, or there's more kind of business around something. Because I think for the Gherkin Jerks, I mean, we two EPs, and then right while the second e- Jerk and Jerk's EP was coming out, the Mr. Fingers, What About This Love was coming out right behind that. So everybody got kind of diverted to the vocal song. And the second EP, of course, didn't do as well as the first one because not everybody wanted What About This Love. And then it kind of started, you know, it's showing up on the charts right next to Lisa Stansfield and stuff like that started labels coming now. So the time to do another Gherkin Jerks thing just didn't happen. And once the Mr. Fingers thing, you had to pour yourself into that. And you just don't make your way back around to it for a long time until someone brings it up. And then you realize that, yeah, I did, you know, let that sit for a long time. So that's what happens. It's not like you're, again, deliberately neglecting or anything like that. It just, you know, just you get involved in working on something else.
1: And then what about the new remixes? How did they come about?
2: Uh, The remixes are always a label or producer or someone's manager approach you with the proposition. And you just check out the tracks and see if they kind of give you any ideas. Hopefully they do, but sometimes you get something where you just draw a blank and you're like, I... You have to tell them, uh, I don't have an idea. And sometimes you get to track where you love what they have originally. You're wondering, like, okay, uh, maybe they just want to spend some money on a remix because I would play this version that they already have. But Do you tell the person that or do you just let them uh, spend their money? It's always kind of like, what should I do kind of a thing there.
1: In terms of the business end of things, you've had, Alliances with major labels obviously and mystery of love is on a huge record this year you've dealt with various hip-hop artists like common and sade approached you at some point hoping to work on a record as well what are what are some i can't exactly remember who it was
2: because i don't know if it was sade or someone connected to you know their coordinating group or what have you but um it was kind of the same situation with I think it was a Shaka Khan close encounter in there Jody Watley one and something like that where someone affiliated with it was you know interested in trying to work something out but the ANR people and some of the executives at the label couldn't quite see it like it's more like doesn't he do house music kind of thing but. The house music, all you got, you just shut the drums off, and you could put a whole other pattern to the same song. But again, these are knowledgeable folks. Why you don't know that, I'm not sure though. But yeah, you can just put another beat on it. Yeah, but they didn't really see it though, far as you know, our flavors, and maybe maybe they were scared of that audience too, because there's always a lot of negative stuff, this injected in, you know in connection with uh, all of the club culture, in a way. Where even since the days of disco, the drugs and sexual illicitness and all this other stuff, they always managed to bring that up. Like rock and roll doesn't have it and hip-hop doesn't have it.
1: What are some of your dream collaborations?
2: I think I mentioned Phyllis Hyman would have been a great one if I had, you know, been kind of anywhere near her to get her to say one word or sing one note, that would have been great. Uh, I started during the whole 90s period when it, the music was coming out with this kind of more of a smooth jazz kind of a overtone. I started thinking about folks like Anita Baker and Howard Hewitt and some of the, the crooners of the day kind of singing on top of it. And then some of the stuff I have just got thought about, Brandy. With some of the tracks I have and of course I have a lot of hip hop tracks and it's like you don't wanna waste the music or have it never see the light of day, but who to pair it with is always a question, so that you kinda have in your mind as far as who you kinda think would be a great person for, it, but whether they feel the same way, you just don't know.
1: What's next for Mr. Fingers or Larry Heard or
2: well I guess the whole whole ball of wax we're always trying to work on some kind of musical concepts I gotta develop this this performance for Dimensions Festival so that's kind of a big chunk of time that has to be allocated to getting that together just continue forward with the music and kind of Hopefully keep the label consistent as far as, you know, releases and not let that kind of come to a halt again. And hopefully you'll be able to just kind of share my music and other people's music via the label and via DJ mixes and all those kind of
1: things. What advice do you have for young producers?
2: I don't know. I can't really even say anything. And I think like I mentioned earlier when we were talking, I don't want to be the do-what-I-say person. I don't want to be that guy. The thing about creativity is has got to be a certain amount of freedom because otherwise the person is just doing what you say. They're not doing what they want to do, what they want to express, you know. So, I guess just have a, a little, little kind of foundation, you know, in some kind of theory as far as putting notes together and things like that. And that's all I can pretty much say. Be be ready to to work hard, I guess, you know, because it probably won't be as easy as it kind of seems from the other side of the, you know, the camera lens when you start doing it, you know. And then with there being so many artists now, because I mean, I'm sure the, I, we don't have any, you know, information as far as the number of releases that are coming out every day. Do you, you don't know anything about that?
1: It's too much. To yeah, it's got to be
2: more than in 1985 when Mystery of Love first came out.
1: There are all these formats now, you know. The idea of a release has changed so much where it's mm-hmm. something that you upload to your SoundCloud can, you know, get a million listens. And how is that different from any other kind of a release? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So, in the end, it, with the sheer number of things coming out, who on the planet has the time to listen to every release that's coming out? I don't think anyone. I don't know if it's humanly possible to do that. So that's the thing, It's just so now it's a, a ocean of things that your release is competing against and trying to be noticed out of all those things can't be
1: easy. I think one of the things that you had said earlier though is that I, I'm not going to be one of these people telling you to follow rules because the point of knowing these rules is to break them almost sometimes,
2: yeah, or to, uh, to intermingle your personality in between the rules. Yeah, yeah. So that's what it is. I don't want to, again. You have too many people with these kind of staunch positions, you know, like folks who, you know, are 100% vinyl and nothing else even matters and stuff. Well, people having choice matters too, though. The medium you pick, you're free to pick it. I use the uh, digital and vinyl and tapes and CDs, so I kind of choose four out of, well, five, six out of the medium, seven, eight, <laughs> seven. <laughs> Lucky seven, yeah.
1: You excited about the new crop of producers that are sort of following in your footsteps in a way who still love that know 2 sound you, you got?
2: Um, well, again... With the, the sheer number that do you actually get to hear all of the the, the new producers? I, I don't think I am because I'm a big chunk of my time is allocated to this room. So yeah, I'm in here kind of cranking out stuff for whoever it may be for a remix or for my own things or what have you. So you, it's a limited window of time to kind of go out and explore all the other stuff that's out there it's just a lot of stuff to kind of whittle through
1: but you're able to find young producers decades your junior that you're excited about
2: oh yeah yeah whether you know here in town or some things i find on juno or beatport or whatever sites you go to and you know put in my i got a full cart on beatport i need to grab some of the stuff and sure I have one on a track source and all kind of other sites too you know so. that's kind of all sitting waiting you know while you're doing this stuff so I'm definitely I'm not the person who would be playing the song the, the same day it comes out because chances are I don't discover it then I end up discovering it two years later or three years later sometimes sometimes 10 or 20 years late
1: but it doesn't quite matter if it's timeless music anyway yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for the timeless music that you've given us, Larry. Really appreciate, you know. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Larry. Thank you.